0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Well, happy Thanksgiving to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for making us part of your Thanksgiving Day here at EWTN Radio. Father Brian Mullady has not had so much turkey that he's in a coma on the couch. He is here with us uh, to uh, answer some mailbag questions on this Thanksgiving day. Um, So we won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be a part of a future mailbag uh, recording, you can just send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's open line at ewtn dot com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host is he is every Thursday the aforementioned Father Brian Milady. How are you?
2: I fine.
1: And happy uh, Thanksgiving. You, thank happy Thanksgiving to you, and I think you're going to uh, uh, pay tribute to the words of some of our founding fathers regarding this holiday, huh?
2: Yes, I wanted to. Uh... I often do this on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, I'd just like to, at the beginning of our program, read this. <clears throat> By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress, and by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many single favors, signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now I therefore do recommend and assign Thursday the 26th of November, next, to be devoted by the people of the United States to the service of that great and glorious being who is the, magnific- the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, and that will be, that we may all then all unite in rendering undue thanks him and our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care, and protection of the people of this country, previous to their becoming a nation, for all the signal and manifest mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experience in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty, which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one, now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquitting and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us, and also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the good, great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially as have shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be the best. Given under my hand at the City of New York, the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789, and signed John George Washington. If only we could come up to this today, (laughs) number one. And number two, this is just a civil statement of thanks. It's not connected to any particular religion, but we're very grateful in Catholicism because our ultimate thanksgiving is the Eucharist, a word which means thanksgiving, of the Mass, where all these various things that George Washington hoped for the country might be ours personally and as a religion so that we too may be a sign and encouragement of others to a just and lasting government and to religion and virtue.
1: You know, here at EWTN, we have the great pleasure of uh, all of the archived footage of all of the programs that Mother Angelica did over the years. And we will always watch them and, and we will always have one similar thought, and that is, you know, this could have been produced last week and she could be speaking straight into the times that we face today. Boy, I don't get that feeling when you're reading that. (laughs) (laughs) No.
2: No, it's so sad when you think about it that people don't realize what this country was founded on, or if they do, they reject it. Um, This is uh, a very great difficulty for us today, and you can see that George Washington certainly had no qualms about talking about religion in public, but unfortunately, we seem to. Well,
1: and I thought it was interesting. He, he didn't use the word grace, but he essentially referenced signal graces in his address, which is exactly. a, a, you know a very solid piece of Catholic theology. Exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 Anyway, perhaps one day we will drift back in that direction, but uh, I, I dare say it won't be today.
2: No, but we personally certainly can try to approach this as much as possible in our own personal lives and in our personal Thanksgivings.
1: Um, This is, as we said, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday on this Thanksgiving Day. Um, We got an email from Ryan, Father, and he wants to know how, as Catholics, are we to read the pagan philosophers?
2: Oh, wonderful. That's a wonderful question. Uh, It's the famous question of how Athens meets Jerusalem. Um, The pagan philosophers, as Thomas Aquinas would have put it, understood and uh, experienced all the truths that human reason unaided by grace in their minds can experience. And especially the truth about God. Now, of course, without divine revelation... There are things that would be difficult to know. So St. Thomas says, only a, without revelation, only a few people with a mixture of air in their old age would discover these truths. The philosophers then really enter deeply into the human race. And when you read someone like Socrates, for instance, who even talks, I believe, in The Republic, about the philosopher being taken outside the city and crucified because he tells people the truth. There's obviously great connections between Athens and Jerusalem. Now, the difficulty is, as I say, first of all, very few people would know this, and it would take a long, long time. God wants us all to know him intimately, immediately. So, though philosophy can discover these truths... And I believe, as did St. Paul and Thomas Aquinas and the First Vatican Council and the Second Vatican Council and other many others, that philosophers did discover the same God as Moses on Mount Sinai. I am who I am, unaided by faith. Uh, it's still necessary that everyone might experience that for their good. And that's one of the arguments for the necessity of divine revelation. Also, philosophy brings you to a box canyon about certain questions. In other words, a true and humble philosopher realizes there are certain questions you just can't answer. And so, therefore, there needs to be another doctrine, which is the doctrine of revelation. Unfortunately, in the last 50 years the whole place of revelation as a necessary experience has been undercut and a peculiar philosophy, a philosophy that tends to see atheism or death or uh, as, as the final purposes of man has been exalted because of the twentieth century and the real philosophers who would be the people like Plato and Aristotle have been uh, greatly devalued. But the pagan philosophy in its best form has a huge preparatory nature for the gospel and you can see this in st paul's address of the areopagus
1: eight well i don't know why i'm giving out the phone number because this is a very special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line thursday on this thanksgiving day uh so we won't be taking your phone calls today but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag presentation you simply send us an email, openline at EWTN.com.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, The address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: And this is a very special mailbag edition on this Thanksgiving day. Uh, Got a beautiful new item at EWTN's religious catalog, Behold the Lamb of God. It's a framed piece of art. This is a detail from a larger painting entitled Adoration of the Shepherds, which was originally created by uh, Italian artist Lorenzo Lotto. It shows an up-close look at the infant Jesus reaching out and touching a lamb held near him by one of the shepherds. This fine art print is framed under premium clear glass in a decorative wood frame with a gold finish, and it's ready to hang. This piece measures 10 half inches wide by 12 half inches high, and it's made right here in the United States. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping with online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Simply use the code FREE at checkout. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday on this Thanksgiving Day, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Thomas writes in, Father... How can we combat human-constructed truths and relativism?
2: Well, the first thing is to try to demonstrate that relativism destroys itself. So if you say there are no absolute truths, that includes the statement you just made. (laughs) So, in other words, you enter into the whole thing of the problem of the logical contradiction or one of the first principles of human knowledge, which is the axiom of non-contradiction, a thing cannot both be and not be the same thing at the same time in the same respect. If all truth is relative, then that includes that truth, and therefore there are no truths, really, or there must be some other standard under which to judge a thing than that. That was one of Aristotle's proofs for the first principles of knowledge. So the way you can contract relativism is, first of all, demonstrate that it contradicts itself. Secondly, which is perhaps more efficacious, uh, is that you have to try to um, help a person see that once they enter into the realm where everything is subjective, then they themselves become and fodder for the fact that there are no truths. Um, I remember one time I had uh, a class I was teaching and there was a thoroughly nasty Texas businessman in ethics and I was trying to explain to him the papal principle because many of these people weren't Catholic. That um, you know your salary is not a commodity to be bought and exchanged on the on the marketplace it uh, it's, expresses you, partially. And since you're a person, uh, the value of your work is your personhood, or it's your reasonability. It's not the machines. You're not just a more sophisticated machine. So one fellow got really perturbed at this, and he said, look, my salary is a commodity to be bought and exchanged. It has nothing to do with me as a person or an individual. And it's just cutthroat competition. I said, well, fine, if you want to think that. It's fine, but don't complain to me when you're sold. (laughs) Because you have no rights. You know, I mean, uh, do you really want to be sold? Do you really want to be the... It's okay for me to be the slave owner, but not the slave. I mean, (laughs) once you reach this relativity thing, uh, at least with human beings, it's very hard. But also with other things. I mean, I, I know, for example, there's a new math and part of this new math this isn't the new math of the 70s this is the new math of the woke 2010s you vote on the answer to math problems well I want to see the first bridge they build (laughs) by people who are educated to vote on the answer to math problems how long will it stand up probably not too long (laughs) so if you give people practical examples like that They can see, well, there must be some standards that have some objectivity to them. Well, all you got to do is beach beach, on the beachhead, get a hold on the beachhead, and then things begin to change a bit.
1: Um, We'll keep with the philosophical theme of today's program so far. Samantha writes in, what is the difference between philosophy and metaphysics?
2: Oh, metaphysics is a branch of philosophy. Uh, metaphysics, uh, there's actually three principal philosophies, uh, The one, uh, studies of philosophy. The one is the beings that move and, and also uh, are known by their movement. That would be physics. Then you have the beings that don't move necessarily, but you could move them and know them despite that, which is by abstraction. And that would be the things that are found in the physical world as far as their uh, quantity is concerned, but they don't, themselves aren't a part of it. So, for example, s- squareness or triangularity, uh, we have a philosophy mathematics that discusses that, but there is no perfect square in the, in the nature, nor is there a perfect triangle. It's more relationships that are perceived by our mind But then you have the beings that neither move or change nor depend upon movement and change in the senses to be known as such. You have to know that they exist and things like that, but they don't depend on this. And this is metaphysics, which is the science beyond physics. And with Aristotle, he first thought with many of the pagan philosophers in Greece that everything was matter and when they tried to explain how everything was matter, they came up against the wall because it doesn't work. Remember, they, Aristotle says in his metaphysics, uh, the first philosophers dreamed the truth because they realized that the, their, their perception was the cause and explanation of everything must be one. But then they tried to make it a material cause, you know, and of course with them the elements were fire, earth, air, and water. We are much more sophisticated than that now from our science. But still they couldn't explain all, all of reality based on the elements. There had to be something that held them together and things like that. So they, as they went on in their deliberations, they went into the world like a man goes into a field to dig a grave and they, without looking for it, discovered a treasure, namely the existence of God. And this existence was discovered at the end of physics because only a being that has no change or movement uh, can can be the first mover and explain the rest. Well, once they discovered that, Aristotle said, well, but this being therefore for can't be material. So there must be a science that goes beyond material science. And therefore they posited a further science to physics. And the Greek word for beyond physics is metaphysics. So metaphysics is just one of the sciences in, in moral and uh, uh, philosophy. Also, there's different subject matter to some of them, like Human actions, well, that would be, of course, ethics. Or human emotions, that would be human psychology, the soul. Or uh, 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 human um, creativity, that's more an art than a science, but it's still connected somewhat to science. Aesthetics, and then you also have that, that which is more an art than a science, but treated like a science today and that's the art of healing, which would be medicine. Uh, as you know, you can know everything you learn in medical school, and still kill people. <laughs> so you had to develop the art of how to apply all these things you know abstractly to the practical order, which is what the art of medicine really is. It's one of the reasons why doctors like to be treated as scientists that have absolute knowledge, and then you know the patient dies. <laughs> because they did something that they didn't know or didn't take account of. Because even though their knowledge is important, they're not God and they're certainly not absolute truths um, about everything that they know. So therefore, uh, it's more an art how to apply what they do know to what, uh, to the healing of a body.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Um, George writes in, he wants to know, is it permissible to do evil in order to achieve a good? No.
2: (laughs) That was a big problem, a famous problem in the 70s. And it was actually a book by a Jesuit called Doing Evil to Achieve Good. Uh, No, uh uh-uh. Remember, uh, both the end and the order have to be good. You can't have a good end and a wicked order, uh, because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, there are people who go on and on and on about how, well, what I wanted was good. Of course, my means to get there is bad. Well, by the same token, if your if your uh, end is uh, that, 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 well, that's what I'm saying. You have to have a good order, a good means as well as a good end, because goodness is integral.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday on this Thanksgiving Day. Uh, I hope that you are enjoying yourself and your family, and uh, hopefully you even made it to Mass this morning before you started the rest of your Thanksgiving Day festivities, which myself, as someone who went to high school and college in the great state of Michigan, one of the big Thanksgiving Day traditions uh, is watching the Lions lose. And so, (laughs) and unfortunately, as the years have gone on, that has become more than a Thanksgiving tradition, but (laughs) just about a week-in, week-out tradition. Uh, But say a little prayer for the Lions uh, uh, on behalf of me today, if that's what you're uh, engaged in. But we are thankful that you've tuned in to Open Line for this mailbag edition. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag here uh, on EWTN Radio on Open Line Thursday. It's really easy to do. All you have to do is formulate your question and put it in the form of an email and then send that email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. You can also, Monday through Friday, while the show is on the air, you can go to the EWTN YouTube channel uh, or you can go to the EWTN Radio Facebook page and watch us on Facebook Live during the week. And you can type questions into the chat window in those particular uh, apps and we can retrieve the questions from there. And we can also make them part of a future mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line. Once again, happy Thanksgiving. We're uh, happy to have this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. So we will not be taking your phone calls today. And this will be your last opportunity before the end of the program to grab another piece of turkey.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: That's right. No phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday on this Thanksgiving day. Um, Henrietta writes in, and she wants to know, Father Brian, are we deifying the saints when we pray to them?
2: Well, no, any more than you're deifying your mother or your brothers or sisters or your friends when you uh, ask them for help, uh, I don't know, washing the dishes or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they're, uh, we're, we're asking them to intercede too with the Lord for us because um, it shows the love we have for others, their love for us, and in all those things we are trying to get a great cloud of witnesses in a certain sense, as Scripture says, to help us on our journey toward heaven. And most people have favorite saints they pray to, either for particular needs or because they feel close to them because their life struggle is very much like ours. They're just companions on the journey. They're, they're friends. And uh, so when we do good, we think about their good, it encourages us. That's all. Now uh, No sense are we deifying them.
1: Um, John writes in, and this, this would be a great opportunity to kind of clear up the process here a little bit, Uh, down through the centuries, but he wants to know why did it take until the 1800s to confirm the dogma of the Immaculate Conception?
2: Well, because some of the doctrines had their origin in local churches, and uh, though uh, people believed in the Immaculate Conception, uh, at least for the most part, they didn't find it necessary to define. Now, the difficulty they had with it, and it was a difficulty that wasn't solved by theology until Dun Scotus came along in like the 1300s, was that Mary still has to be redeemed. I mean, in other words, she has to be among the redeemed. But, obviously, if she has no sin, how could she be redeemed? Well, the Final solution was given by Dun Scotus, who said it was in light of her participation in the Passion that God chose to give her this special gift, where uh, she's still among the redeemed because she's a part of Christ's cross, but it's like in anticipation, and it's partially because of the, you know, the glories of the Blessed Virgin Mary. When St. Thomas originally treated this question. In one place, he seems to suggest he believes in it. In another place, at the Summa, which is the most famous place, he says he didn't for two reasons. First of all, because they didn't celebrate the feast in Rome. It was an Eastern feast. And secondly, because he believed that Mary was conceived in sin, and then because she had to be among the redeemed, instantly cleansed. Now, had the church taught or had it had been clear from the teaching of the papacy or even the feast celebrated in the Western Church that the people believed in the Immaculate Conception, he certainly would have found arguments for that. He certainly thought she was full of grace. But she just uh, had had that one instant where she had to be uh, conceived in without grace and then redeemed uh, as a special gift to her. Well, the, uh, the popes argued against that. And uh, because it's true, and uh, that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. And also, as I say, I'm sure if it had been a common theological opinion in the Western Church of St. Thomas' time, he would have found an argument in favor of it, too. Whether it would have been the same argument as done Scotus, I don't know, but he would certainly have found some reason why uh, she had to be conceived without sin.
1: And this was really the case down through the centuries of several of the dogmas of the churches. They were not defined until they were because it was really believed everywhere by everybody to be true, huh?
2: Yes. um, Yes, but in this case also, as the questioner asked, there was a theological difficulty with it that had to be explained before it could be stated that it wasn't possible to question it.
1: Uh, Um, We have an email here from Regina, and she says, What's the difference between Christian perfection and holiness or sanctification?
2: Well, in one sense, there's no difference because they involve grace. In another sense, however, there's some difference Because Christian perfection means, the whole idea of something being perfect, means that you've exhausted all in it that's possible for it to be brought to its proper uh, being. Now, when you consider that we still suffer from concupiscence, uh, you know, less of the eyes, less of the fresh pride of life, even though we've been baptized, which is, of course, Christian perfection, the people who embrace the life of perfection, from a fixed way of life—in other words, they bow of poverty, chastity, and obedience—who want to try to help themselves deal with these weaknesses, they are often said to be in a state of perfection, and and so are uh, the bishops, especially as the heads of the church. Saint Thomas was of the opinion that bishops should enjoy infused contemplation. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, I did not know this, but I just realized uh, when a, a person I know published this book, there's a book about the perfection of bishops, and it's in Latin, and it's by a Dominican named Bartholomew of the Martyrs, and it was written during the Council of Trent to help bishops deal with what their life should be like. Well, I did not know that a copy of that book was given to every bishop of Vatican II. Interesting. Before the council started as like a a primer, you know, to see what their life should be like. But, uh, yeah, it's very interesting.
1: Uh, Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday on this Thanksgiving Day. Let's take a listen to one of our listener comment line calls.
0: Hello, my name is Daniel. My question is, when Jesus said, or where it's written, that let the dead go bury the dead, I have my opinion, but I would like for a priest to, uh, you know, give me an answer on that. I thought a lot about it, and uh, I would appreciate it. Again, thank you for your time. God bless. Bye now. Well, that
2: particular episode, The Gospel Can't Be Understood, without relating it to an episode in the Old Testament. Because you remember Elisha uh, was Elijah's companion, the first great prophet. And when he follows Elijah, he asks Elijah permission to go bury his parents, I think, as I recall. And Elijah says, sure, go and do all that stuff, and then come and you can follow me. Well, when this questioner in the Gospel asks the same question, Christ says, "Uh uh-uh, no, uh uh-uh. No, you need to follow me. That's the important thing. Now, why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that as an object lesson in the fact that you're not just dealing with a prophet here. You're dealing with the Redeemer, the one of whom all the prophets spoke. And comments like that, the dead bury the dead, they're more Semiticism's Just to say, look, now that you've experienced life, you need to follow life in its fullness and not worry about all those other things. In fact, you know, in the older religious life, they used to not let you go to weddings or funerals of your own family. And it it seems very cruel to us today. And I suppose there was an aspect of it that was very inhuman. But its whole purpose was to emphasize that you had embraced this life of perfection in which you were perfectly following Jesus. And so you had to be available in divine providence like the apostles were and not worry about your family and things like that. Remember, the apostles basically left their families. Peter, we know Peter was buried. Remember how we know that? Because he had a mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> But, he, you know, he, um, he left her in order to follow Christ. So, again, this seems kind of inhuman to us, but uh, it made perfect sense when you're dealing with the call of the Redeemer to be his intimate
1: companion. Thanks, Regina. We appreciate the call today. Uh, again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, not taking your phone calls today. Bob writes in, How can we enjoy the good things of this earth while still being detached from the world? All right. St. Augustine, milady,
2: answer. That's right. (laughs) That's the good... St. Augustine in one of his uh, homilies says that our attitude as Christians must be having as though not having. So in other words, uh, a Christian should be equally happy with a banquet and a fast. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the banquet, but when you don't have it, you don't miss it. Uh, and you appreciate good things, but if God has not blessed you with them or it's not part of your way of life to have them, then you're equally happy. Your happiness doesn't depend on things at all. But there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things if God has sought, seen fit sought, uh, to give some to you. Um, I, there are Christians that I think are quite extreme where they want to say, well, the food should taste rotten. Well, okay, let's say, let's for the sake of argument, say your food tastes rotten because you don't want to enjoy the good things of this earth. Well, what sense does it make to give up rotten food? How is that a penance? It's not. So, in other words, we appreciate good things when god gives them to us we like good taste but we realize that the purpose of the taste is primarily our health and to encourage us with the need to eat properly and so as a result if we don't have those things for some reason then we don't miss it either
1: you know it's it's interesting and i'm sure you've experienced this yourself father but i know uh I know several, many, as a matter of fact, uh, very philanthropic Catholic people who have been very successful in the world uh, from from a material and financial perspective. And I've gotten just the feeling from being around them that if all of their material possessions went away tomorrow, it wouldn't bother them in the least.
2: Yes, that's... That's to truly be detached from your riches.
1: And I wonder so, if maybe that, that disposition isn't one of the reasons that they acquired them to begin with.
2: Uh, yeah, well, when, obviously you can't give it away if you don't have it, right?
0: That's right. <laughs> so, That's right.
2: Um, but, uh, no, I think, um, you know, crisis is easier for a camel to pass through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter heaven. But he isn't condemning riches as such. He's condemning the power and the um, concern for security and the seeming autonomy that riches could bring to us. And it's very easy for a person who is rich to think that they're responsible for this and not God at all. And therefore they don't owe anybody anything for anything. And they don't have to use their riches responsibly and those are the kinds of people that
0: shouldn't have them.
1: Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls.
0: My name is Anders, I'm from Yakima, Washington. I've got a question on why the Catholic Church believes that Mary and other saints are mediators between us and God when 1 Timothy 2.5 clearly says that Jesus Christ
1: is the only mediator. Thank you.
2: Who said that uh, the saints were mediators? There's a discussion about whether Mary's a mediatrix, but I never read that the saints were mediators, in that, at least in that sense. Uh, first, him, again, like everything in Holy Scripture, you can't just take one sentence out and build a whole theology around it. Christ is the unique mediator between God and man because he redeemed us, because he's both God and man and died on the cross. Nobody, Mary or the saints or anybody else, is like that, obviously. Christ has a unique grace there. Now, because Mary was so intimately connected with the redemption, After all, she stood at the feet of the cross. Christ gave her St. John and us in the person of St. John to watch over as our mother. And just like uh, if you were adopted and your mother became your mother, um, you know, she's, uh, she's not God, obviously. She's a person who is taking the place of your mother or helping you understand what it means to be a mother. The same with the, the saints. Uh, they're friends, companions on the journey. And so is Our Lady in a certain sense. So she, She's the ultimate companion. But uh, please, uh, when we say she's a mediatrix of all graces, we mean after Christ, through Christ, and always connected to Christ. And again, I've never seen the term mediator used when it comes to saints. They're intercessors because, like our friends, they want us to experience good. But uh, again, uh, I'm always amused when I listen to people quote scripture and add their own terms into it, for one thing, and for another thing, quote it completely out of context.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Be sure to tune in to the Catholic Sphere Sunday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's a great show, different host every week, and uh, that host and a three-person panel uh, that have some knowledge of that particular topic uh, will uh, make for some lively discussion. That's the Catholic Sphere every Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Uh, Daniel writes in, Father, does the church have any teaching on family structure, specifically mothers being in the home or fathers being the provider?
2: Well, the church's teaching tends to reflect Jewish ideas. And as far as the Jews were concerned... And this is also true of the pagans, by the way. The father always was more interested in what was happening outside the home. That's why he's the provider. But you remember in ancient times, men and women worked together in the fields, for instance, to bring in the harvest. Um, You know, it wasn't like a housewife, like I love Lucy, kind of thing. And uh, women were responsible for the intimacy within the home. In the famous epic poem by Homer, The Odyssey, uh, the mother, uh, Penelope, has control and authority over all the intimate parts of the house. That includes the bedrooms. Because when the hero Ulysses has been gone for years, all these suitors try to force her to marry them, And the only part of the house they can get in is what we would call the parlor or the living room. But they can't enter the private parts without the woman's permission. And remember, the husband comes home and then cleanses. Ulysses actually does it by blood. Uh, Cleanses the part of the home that opens to the outside. But even he isn't admitted to his bed by his own wife until he's willing to admit his name because she has ultimate authority over that. So it's not so much a matter of work because everybody did work. Uh, Men didn't tend to do the cooking and women didn't tend to work in the fields just because it's harder with your body to plow things and all that stuff. But But they did work together on a lot of things. Um, but it's a matter of responsibility for a uh, nurture of the children. And the woman's emotional support is more important in the primary years, and the men's intellectual support is more important in the adolescent years. And both are necessary, obviously. If both are lack- either one is lacking, the child won't grow up uh, whole emotionally now I'm talking about, not physically. And therefore, it would be difficult for them to enter into whatever society has planned for them, too.
1: Uh, Again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Not taking any live phone calls from you today, but I believe we do have uh, one more listener comment line call.
0: Hello, this is Martha from Rhode Island, and my question is, Where does the Church stand on the Archangel Uriel?
2: Uh, I don't think he exists for the Catholic Church. Um, However, I haven't done any research on that lately, but uh, I think it's a matter of the Apocrypha. And um, it's, I don't know, I'm sure there are Christian authors that talk about it, but it's certainly not scriptural. And also, um, remember, the angels have to have functions. It's um, I'm looking here in, on the uh, iPad, on Wikipedia. Uriel, or Ariel is the name of one of the archangels, mentioned the post-exilic rabbinic tradition and in certain Christian traditions. So he's mentioned there, but he's not of the scriptural origin um and uh, he he wouldn't at least not the Hebrew Bible and the primary place for him I think is in Enoch which is also an apocryphal source and also in all the Gnostic literature of the time so um, I would not necessarily think that he was of... Uh, importance for uh, Christian doctrine, unlike Raphael and Michael and Gabriel, who all have very specific functions to play in the redemption.
1: Uh, We have an email here from Paul. He says, if Jesus is the theophany of God, does only he receive relative Latria?
2: Oh, gosh, if Jesus is the theophany. Well, I don't know where you get these terms from. <laughs> uh, yes, he's unique. I don't know what you mean by relative, Latria. Jesus receives Latria, period. He's God in person. Um, if I were talking about relative Latria, um, well, I, I never heard such a term used. Mary gets um, hyperdulia, and the saints get dulia, which is all uh, um, um, worship or respect for them in relationship to God. But Christ and the Eucharist are all a matter of simple latria along with the Godhead. So the relative latria thing, I've never heard that term before. And I wonder where it comes from.
1: Um, we know an email here from Pam, and she... We're getting a little little legalistic here at the end of the program, I'm afraid. But she says, I have asked for St. Jude and St. Rita's intercession. At the bottom of their prayer card, it says they will be honored as my special patron and that I should encourage devotion to them or glorify and make known their favor. Is it okay to ask both saints of hopeless or impossible favors for their intercession?
2: Oh, my goodness. Of course not. I mean, gosh, the more the merrier, right? <laughs> I mean, most of us who need that kind of intercession, uh, we're more than happy to have it from just, not just from one person. Uh, of course not. they just glory in the Christian religion and all the things it offers you.
1: Keep praying. <laughs>
2: Keep praying, right
1: um luke who listens on archangel radio in fairhope alabama wants to know at the end of time what form of our body will be reunited with our soul young old that kind of deal
2: oh uh well no one really knows except that we know that whatever we've been lacking in our body will get back so if you had your hand amputated you'll get your hand back and all those things, because it has to be a human body with all the things necessary for it. And by the way, that does include whether you're a man or a woman or not.
0: <laughs> blessed
2: or not it's, all right? So they get everything back of that regard. Pious tradition believes that you'll get the body back, which is the perfect body. And most people think that your body is more or less perfect when you reach the age of 33, which is why Christ was crucified then. And I don't know if you noticed or not, uh, but it was around 33 for me where everything started to go downhill. <laughs> yeah. Everything was going up and up and up, and then all of a sudden at 33 or 34.
1: You crested the mountain.
2: That's when the midlife just, <laughs> in its tiny buildings, began.
1: And really quickly, Father, in the last minute we have here, um, John writes in, Father Milady mentioned a book about St. Jude that he recommended, so I went out online and couldn't find it. Do you know the title? Jude. J-U-D-E. There you Liz go. That Trotta. is the title. Father, Liz would you
2: leave? Trotta.
1: T-R-O-T-T-A.
2: Liz Trotta is the author.
1: Beautiful. Would you leave us with a blessing?
2: Have a blessed Thanksgiving in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
1: Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, producer Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your Thanksgiving day, and God bless.